We're going to continue on in this uh, little book we call Jude. And if you remember last week, what we did is we went through, really, we went through verses 1 and 2, and that just encompassed uh, Jude's greeting, his introduction. And just as a quick recap, we're going to go over that, just kind of set the stage today. And this is what we read. Jude, a bondservant of Messiah Yeshua and brother of Yaakov, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Messiah Yeshua, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Obviously, a very beautiful, a very warm and pleasant greeting. I mean, this is certainly the way you want to start off. However, as Jude continues, he is immediately going to dispense with the pleasantries. And he doesn't even afford you the luxury of just kind of dipping your toe, you know, on the shallow end of this epistle. What he's going to do is he's going to throw you into the deep end right off the bat. He's going to come out guns blazing. And what you're going to see is there is something on his heart. There is something weighing on him and he can't stop. He has to get it to the table. And so it's this, as we go to verse three, this is what we read. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I want to stop here because I want you to appreciate the context at at least this far. And I'm going to put this up on the screen The Greek word for diligent is spude. And so he was very spude. In other words, he was extremely excited. He had an overwhelming zeal. He has this zeal. That's a better term to use here. A zeal to do what? To write to you concerning our common salvation. Do you understand what what Jude is saying? He's saying, listen to me. This is what I want to do. This is what's in my heart. I wanted to come to you and I want to talk about the beauty of our salvation, God's faithfulness, God's love, the power and might of Yeshua, the promises that we're going to have, the the promises of our inheritance, the blessings. Jude's intent for this epistle was, was very, it was literally to bind together with his brethren to rejoice. That's his intent, but guess what? He doesn't get to do that. Not today. He's got to go in a completely different direction. And we find out what that is as we continue. He says this, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You understand? Okay, so here's the full context right now. He originally wanted to come to the table. He wanted to write to them of all the beautiful things that we read, the joy of the Lord. You know, I wanted to rejoice with my brethren and the reality of our salvation and the blessings and the promises. This is what I need to do. But now I can't do that. I need to come to you. And what I need to do is I need to tell you to contend earnestly for the faith. And you look at this in the Greek for contend earnestly. This is a, this is a reference to a struggle in the context of warfare. What is Jude asking them to do? He's commissioning these saints. It's time to mount up, suit up, prepare for war. It's time to fight. It's time to fight for the faith. Why do they need to fight for the faith? They're under attack. The faith is under attack. This is a call to war. And I'm just going to say this. You know, when I read this, it just, it, it, it almost makes you weep. And you long 
how you long for pastors and preachers and shepherds and the professors over these seminaries, that they would take a page out of Jude's book, they would take a lesson, that they would listen to his wisdom and what he's doing. Yeah, it was in his heart to talk about the beauties of their salvation, but he can't because we're under attack. And therefore, I'm going to call the troops to war. I wonder what that would look like if the pastors took to the pulpits tomorrow across this country and did this. I yearn for this. This is what has to happen here. Right now in this country with what we see unfolding. I want to take you to the Apocrypha really quick. And I want to mirror what, what Jude is saying here. I actually want to bring it more to life so that you understand exactly what he is commissioning. And I'm going to take you to the book of Sirach. Is, you know, just as a side note, one of my favorite books in the Apocrypha is Sirach. And many of you have been with me, you already know that. But there is a passage in there I've never forgotten. I've never forgotten this passage. It just, it's one of those passages, it's just like as you go through scripture, you read something, you come across something, man, it sticks with you. And that passage is this, and it plays right into the hand. Fight to the death for the truth, and the Lord God will fight for you. Fight to the death. Do you understand what Jude is doing? He's telling you, you need to rise up and fight for the faith. You need to defend it at all costs, no matter what the cost is. You fight to the death for it. Well, that being said, it begs the question, if Jude is calling his brothers to war, to fight, and to defend the faith, well, let me ask two questions. Where is the battle? And who are we fighting? Where is it? Well, as we continue, Jude tells us, he says this, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. Who are we fighting? We're fighting ungodly men. Oh, but it's more than that. Look at what you're reading on the screen right now. It's so much more than that. We're fighting in particular men who have crept in unnoticed. Oh, now I know where the battle is. Where's the battle? This is the, this is the scariest part. It's in the church. It's in the ecclesia. It's in the kahal. It's in the assembly, the body of Christ. This is where this war is. And we have men who have crept in that nobody is recognizing. Why are they not recognizing these men? Because they look like one of us. They look just like one of us. See, they appear to say just the right things. They appear to do the right things. They take their post in ministry. They're part of the church activities. We don't see them. We don't notice them. And yet, these are not kingdom builders. They're going forth and they're undermining the kingdom. They're secret destroyers. Oh, this is so crazy that this is, can actually happen. Now, you might want to appreciate why Judah's shifting gears a little bit. Why well, can't write about the common, our common salvation? No, I got to write about something that's pressing, that's immediate right now. We're being gutted. And so he brings, he changes the tone completely. I want to give you an example of how insane this is. So Yeshua, as he's literally having his last Passover with his disciples, he says something that rocks their world. And he says, one of you are going to betray me. 
Now, here's the thing. The response of the disciples, they didn't have a clue who that was. And actually, the Gospel of John records they were perplexed. They're dumbfounded. The Gospel of Luke gets into it and says, is it I? Literally goes one by one all the way down. All the apostles, is it I? Think about this for a second. He tells them one of them is going to betray him, and nobody's immediately pointing their finger at Judas Iscariot. You know, Peter, James, and John just go over there as soon as they hear Yeshua say that. We knew that dirtbag. We told you. We knew this. We knew he was slimy from the get-go. You know what? They didn't know a thing because they were doing ministries shoulder to shoulder with Judas. And I'm going to tell you something. Judas Iscariot's betrayal did not start at the recordation of what we would call the ultimate betrayal as he betrays Yeshua into the hands of the Romans and the chief priests. No, no, no. It started long before that. You can go and read the Gospels, and you'll even read it. You'll come across the story, an interesting story, where the woman comes out, and she anoints Yeshua. This is, um, and, and, and it was such costly, fragrant oil. And what it records, and specifically the Gospel of John records, Judas Iscariot was livid. And Judas comes out, and he seems to fight for Scripture. He comes out and says, this should have been sold and given to the poor. And I'm going to tell you right now, this whole book, front to end, is concerned about the poor. It is our mission. It's one of the things that we need to do. Judas comes out fighting for that. See, it appears what he's saying is right. See, Satan comes as a minister of light. His ministers come as ministers of righteousness. They come speaking a good game. The thing about it is, is what this woman did was righteous and holy. And it was so righteous and holy, Yeshua says that what she has done for me, everywhere the gospel is preached, this story will be told as a testimony to her. You see how scary this is? They had no clue. I mean, we're talking about the eminent 12. I mean, this is the apostolic court, and they didn't know. And Jude now is ringing the alarm. He is ringing the alarm. We got a situation on our hands. What is it that these men are doing? I mean, he talks about these men crept in and noticed, and I can tell you, yeah, they look just like one of us. They say the right things. They seem to say the right things and all of this stuff. What is it that they're doing? And here's the beauty of it. Jude, with a laser, pinpoints exactly what is happening. And this is what he says. Who turned the grace of God, our God, into lewdness. You understand? This is no coincidence. So here you have the grace of God. Think about this. The grace of God, out of all concepts in Scripture, eclipses them all. I can talk about, I can talk about the wisdom of God. It's infinite. And that's incredible. You can't tap tap the bottom of it. I can talk about the power of God when he commands the sun to stand still for Joshua until his victory is had. He commands, it stands still. It listens to him. Infinite power. But when I bring the matter of grace up, it eclipses them all. There is nothing more incredible, more awesome, more impactful in our lives than God's mercy, his love, his grace. And yet it's this one that is being gunned for. I'm going to tell you right now, the adversary knows, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so now we have men creeping in. They look like one of us. They talk a good game. They look a good game. But they're repurposing 
the grace of God. They're corrupting it. They're actually redefining it. These are men that walk around with the umbrella of grace saying, I'm under grace, I'm under grace. But here's the thing, no matter where they walk, as they carry this umbrella, they say, I'm under grace. So I can walk over into a path of sin. I can walk into disobedience. I'm under grace. I have my umbrella. I'm under it. So it doesn't matter where I walk. This is what is going on. And you need to understand something. Scripture spends a ridiculous amount of time warning us against this very thing, the very thing that Jude's bringing to the table. I think of uh, Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.19, where he says, let everyone who names the name of Christ, you grab onto that holy name. You must depart from iniquity. You don't get to stay there. I think of his words in Romans Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall I say? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Let me ask you, why is he even bringing this up? Why should he say, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The reason Paul is bringing this to the table is because it's a threat. The very thing that Jude is having to deal with that has crept into the church and that is unnoticed, it is a real threat. And Paul's no fool. He knows the tactics of the adversary and he knows your heart. He knows the heart of flesh, deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. He knows how how we are masters at convincing ourselves we're okay. We can walk in sin and we're okay. You see, it helps us sleep at night. Paul warns us, don't go there. Don't get comfortable in sin because of grace. Think of Galatians 2.17, one of my favorite passages in regard to this. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Mashiach therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. In other words, Paul is saying, You notice something, and I'm going to do this intentionally. You'll notice what I'm doing. I'm going all over the place. I'm going all over the place in in the New Testament because what you need to understand is this is a serious problem. And it's like every time the apostles get a chance, they're going to deal with it. And so Paul comes on this scene and says, while we seek to be justified by Christ, in other words, I want to say I'm under grace. I need to be justified by him. But then we ourselves are found sinners, and what is sin? 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin, commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so basically what he's saying is he says, if we ourselves are found lawless, to be lawless, you've abandoned the law of God. You've walked away from it. So while I seek to be justified by grace, I myself am walking in lawlessness, I now take Christ, this holy Messiah, perfect in every way, that only promotes righteousness and holiness, and I now make him a minister of that which is unclean, that which is abominable, that which is disgusting. You know what they call that? They call that blasphemy in Scripture, which the Torah is very clear. You get the death penalty. That's what you have to expect. Acts 10.34 Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. The reason he's saying this is because you got Gentiles coming into the faith now. But in every nation, whoever fears him, oh, and guess what? Works righteousness. Those are the ones that are accepted by him. Doesn't say works lawlessness. Doesn't say you carry around your umbrella of grace into the land of iniquity. 
You have to bear righteous behavior. You have to commit, you have to walk in God's commandments. And this is just, it's over and over. And it, it's, you feel like a broken record after a time. You feel like you keep saying this and keep saying this. There's a reason. The Bible's filled with it. It keeps warning us that the Lord doesn't allow us to take three steps without going, whoop, commandments of God, commandments of God, obedience, be mindful. We need that. Give us five minutes and our flesh wants to take us out. Five minutes is just unbelievable. Peter gives this warning and this plays right into Jude. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free. I'm under grace. We're free. We've been set free. Oh, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, which is wickedness, kakia in the Greek, but as bondservants of God. And so as you look at Jude and he says, they're turning the grace of God into lewdness. This is exactly what Peter is warning about. They're taking liberty, they're taking grace, and they're using it as a cloak. They're cloaking their wickedness. In other words, guess what they're doing? You're sanctifying sin. You are fortifying sin by sanctifying rebellion. But here's the deal. Man, you want to make friends with the world, the best way to do that is is just to tell them what they want to hear. You want to make disciples of Yeshua? Tell them the truth. That's the reality. Now, I'm going to take this into modern day. One of the things I said last week was, this epistle could have been written yesterday, for all I know. It is more relevant today than it was in Jude's day. I'm going to show you how true that statement is. Recent headline, breaking news, Bethel Church goes gay. Bethel Church used its Facebook page on Thursday to tell the LGBTQ community that if they feel fulfilled and happy, they don't need to change. Thank you, brother. He's a good man. They don't need to change. So so here's the deal. The church. We're not dealing with the secular institution. I'm not talking about the University of Berkeley here. The church is telling them, these people that are engaged in this lifestyle, that if you feel good about yourself, if you really feel happy and fulfilled, you love your partner, no worries. You don't have to change. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. I'm going to tell you something right now. The gospel of Yeshua, of Jesus, that gospel absolutely demands change. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You go to Acts 17.30, where he goes, uh, truly, uh, in times past, God has overlooked the sins, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. He commands it. All men everywhere. That's everyone. You must repent. It demands change. You can read Romans chapter 12, right? Where he talks about um, we're, we're to have a renewing of the mind, we're to be totally renewed in the mind that we may prove that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Let's talk about don't be conformed to the world, be transformed. There's a change. It's a radical change. Well, why does Paul talk about in, in, um, to the Corinthians, what is he talking about? If you're in Christ, you know, old things have passed away. All things are new. You've become a new creation. 
Why would, why would he talk about that? Why does Yeshua say, unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You have to lose your life for my sake. Now, why does, why does Yeshua talk to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? And he tells him, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. He tells him that because what is required to accept the gospel is a radical and infinite change. It is required. This is absolute insanity. And even the Torah, the Torah warns you. Spends plenty of time warning us. You know, I, I think of when Israel listens to all those beautiful blessings and then they, then they have to listen to all the curses. And then Moses comes to him, you know, and says, did you, did you hear that? You know, we're going to be blessed if, you're, if you keep the commandments of God, but you're going to be cursed if you don't. And then he goes on and he actually tells him in, in chapter 29, listen, don't you dare say into your own heart that I'm going to have peace even though I walk according to the dictates of my own heart. You're not going to have peace. Do not believe it. And again, Moses is warning because there's a threat. There's a threat that we fall into that. And so we have the word that keeps us in these guardrails. But now we have certain men that have crept in and ripped off the guardrails and say, do whatever feels good. And we're with you. That's not all. We'll continue in this. God loves all people, LGBTQ plus and straight. I want to show you how insanely and vilely deceptive this is. You want to talk about a level of deception. When I tell you this is the scariest war imaginable, you're looking at it. Because what I'm going to tell you, if taking this statement, that's why I didn't put the rest up here. I just want you to see this. This statement is biblically true in and of itself, not in this context, but in and of itself, make no mistake, Yeshua came to save sinners. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a biblical fact. That's beautiful. So I can look at this. God loves the world. That's why he gave Yeshua. Because he first so loved the world. And so this is what I'm saying. These people talk a good game. They appear to say the right things. But when you start putting the pieces together, it's when it gets scary. Look at the rest of this. This is what we read. The message of change has never been, listen to this, all must change. Are you serious? It's never been all must change? We share these stories specifically for Christians who are unfulfilled in identifying as LGBTQ. For those of you who feel fulfilled and happy as you are, we love you. We love you. And so what they're doing is they're affirming them in their sin. They're not affirming truly the love of Yeshua for them. There's a difference. They are affirming their sin. We are called to love them. We are called to bring the gospel to them. We're called to be patient with them. We're called to embrace that for the gospel's sake. But now they're affirming the sin and they're removing all conviction. They're sending them to hell while they tell them they love them. Oh, wait a second. That sounds familiar to me because Judas betrayed Yeshua with a kiss. They're literally, you know, uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6. It, it talks about faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. There's no friendship here. There's no concern. There's no love here. They're literally sending them to their death. 
This is absolutely off. And, and by the way, just as a reminder, this is in the church. These are card-carrying, professing Jesus people. Moving on. Southern Baptist Convention chooses gay-affirming pastor as 2020 conference president. Do you understand the magnitude of what is happening in the church right now? If Jude were alive today, he wouldn't believe it. He would not believe what we are seeing in the church. People going out, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. Look at this headline. Uh, National Cathedral criticized for inviting Max Licato to preach despite pastors' anti-LGBTQ views. Now listen to this. Washington National Cathedral faces a growing backlash from, it doesn't say the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's not what it says. It says from some Episcopalians, Christians, for inviting popular author and evangelical megachurch pastor Max Lucado as guest preacher February 7th, despite Lucado's past statements against homosexuality and same-sex marriage. In other words, you know, Mr. Lucado has taken a biblical approach to marriage. He's taken a biblical approach to sexuality. And it's not, again, it's not state universities are coming out and protesting against this. It's people in the church how, how, do you, how do you even, how do you process that? You process it the way Jude has instructed. Certain men have crept in. Unnoticed. We continue. Let's go into Catholicism. This is, that we're in Protestantism. Let's move to Catholicism. Catholic LGBTQ nuns are speaking up again. And this time they have no intention of going away. Do you see the brazenness and the boldness that is happening in the church with Christians? They're like, you know what? I'm gay, and I'm not giving that up, and I'm a Christian, and I'm not giving up that title. I'm going to marry the two. I will bring them together, and we have the holy being mixed with the profane, and what we have is the church being gutted from the inside out. This is what we have. It gets crazier. Let's go to the top. What Pope Francis's comments about gay families could mean for the LGBTQ people worldwide. And listen to this. As the Pope's words about gay couples spread to audiences around the world, it wasn't just his support for the creation of civil unions that stood out. It was his embrace of same-sex couples as part of a family unit, an image that goes beyond a person's individual legal rights, and then says this. This is the Pope. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Pope Francis said in a new documentary, nobody should be thrown out. And what he means is thrown out of the church for this activity or be made miserable because of it. Nobody's to be thrown out of the church. Again, you go to scripture and it's the exact opposite. And let me draw a distinction here very quickly. This is not talking about being able to go out and minister to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and saying, well, you're not allowed in our building. No, 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 that's not what this is saying. And that's not what I'm saying. We, we actually have to have doors open so that we can minister to these people, love on them, and give them truth. What this is saying is that even though they are going to rebel and specifically refuse to change their lifestyle or to hear the word of God, well, what the Pope is saying is they don't need to leave despite that. And that's where I would argue, okay, hold on now. If you have someone that's going staunch in rebellion, says, I don't care what the word of God is, I'm just going to be a Christian and I'm going to embrace this kind of lifestyle. That's where... 1 Corinthians 5 kicks in. 
You have a guy in sexual immorality, you get the evil out of the camp. You, you hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and hope they come to their senses, you pray, they come to the senses, repent, and guess what? The church receives them back with that broken heart. That's how it works. I highlighted this and what he said. See, this, it, it's when you get into termino- terminology like this that I, I really get a, a, an appreciation, and, and not in a good way, but I get an appreciation for the kind of adversary we're up against and how deceptive. Because these words, these are words you want to hear. They're children of God. And when you hear that, it makes you comfortable wherever you're at. Okay, I'm okay. But I want to be very clear. If we, you know, Hebrews 10, 26, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then the writer goes, actually goes down and he says, you know what you end up doing when you do that? You insult the spirit of grace. And listen to me. If you are in a point in your life where you are insulting the spirit of grace, you're defying God, you refuse to hear from him with no repentance in sight, Make no mistake, you are not a child of God. And and here's the thing. Go home and read John 8. And you have Jews. Now, this is what's mind-blowing. The text actually records Jews who believed in Yeshua, having a conversation with Yeshua. And and Yeshua comes out, and I didn't put this up here, but I'm going to read this to you. He comes out and says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen to that. But they answered, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Yeshua answered them, said, most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. Only a son abides. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And then it goes on, and they say, you know, they go on and say, you know, Abraham is our father. Here's the problem. Yeshua responds, if you were Abraham's children, guess what? You would do the works that Abraham did. That's how you know whether or not you're Abraham's children. And then Yeshua goes on. He's talking to these Jews who believe in him. He goes on and says, you're of your father, the devil. They were not children of God. This is the king of glory, Yeshua, going on and saying, no, you are of your father, the devil. You're children of the devil. They did not do the works that Abraham did. I mean, how scary is this? And so when you, you see people start throwing around terminology like this, oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. That's not true. You will know them by their fruits. And these are the messages we don't want to talk about. These are the messages that are, by and large, not being preached from the pulpits. We're totally removing the fear of judgment, the fear and and consequences of sin, taking it, stripping it out, out of the equation totally. It's no wonder we can walk around with umbrellas of grace and saying we're under grace even though I'm walking on the coals of hell. It's fine. It gets crazier. Let's move on. This, this 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 is so absurd. Most of you were with me when I went through this. Remember Andy Stanley, why do Christians want to post the Ten Commandments and not the Sermon on the Mount? Which is a bit of irony in and of itself, considering the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest commentary in history on the Ten Commandments. But never mind that. Never mind that. 
This is what he says. The Ten Commandments are from the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments played a significant role in God's creation of the nation of Israel. It gave them moral guidelines and helped separate this new nation from their neighbors. Well, I agree with that. It does give you moral guidelines, and it does separate you from the world, right? And then it goes on and says, This was part of the formal agreement God created with his people, but Yeshua's death and resurrection signaled the end of that covenant and all the rules and regulations associated with it. And he'll explain what he means. Yeshua didn't issue his new commandment as an additional commandment to the existing list of commands. He didn't say, here's the 614th law. Obviously, you know, traditional Judaism upholds their 613 laws in the Torah. And so here's the 614th law. Yeshua issued his new commandment as a replacement for everything in the existing list, including the Big Ten. And so here you have, he's actually referencing John 13, 34, where Yeshua comes out and says, you know what? I, today I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I just want to say something. The reason he said it, it's a new commandment, because never before in history had God become flesh. Never before in history had Emmanuel come. But now he had, and Yeshua served his own disciples, even washing their feet. And so now Yeshua says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. As I have loved you, you go love others. This was not a commandment in any way, shape or form, that did away with the Ten Commandments. See, but this is what people are preaching from the pulpit in the church. This is the church we're hearing this. I expect to hear this out of Washington, D.C. I expect to hear this from atheist groups. I don't expect to hear it from pastors, megachurch pastors who have greatly influenced thousands upon thousands. Certain men have crept in unnoticed, and they are turning the grace of God into lewdness. This is what is happening. It's out of control. Now, I want to take you to 2 Peter. Remember, 2 Peter is our companion to the book of Jude, right? They're preaching the same message, only using a little different terminology. Listen to how Peter articulates what Jude has brought to the table in Jude 1.4. Listen to this. He says this, For when they speak great swelling words, of emptiness. Oh, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Isn't that interesting? So it'd be like Bethel Church coming out and said, you know what? We love you. You don't need to change. If you feel fulfilled in your heart, you don't need to change. Well, why do they, you know, what are they, what are they embracing as, it, when they're in an immoral relationship, what are they embracing? They're embracing the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And here, Peter comes out, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in air. And while, listen to this, they promise them liberty. You will be okay. You don't need to change. You'll have freedom. You're under grace. They themselves are slaves of corruption. In other words, the people teaching this nonsense, they themselves are slaves to corruption. And for by whom a person is overcome... By him also, he is brought into bondage. I'm going to tell you, you let the kind of people that we're looking at, and this is nothing. I am showing you nothing in regard to all the articles I can inundate you. I could bury you in these articles. You let, you let people like this speak into your life, and they will lead you to your death. Absolute guaranteed. 
Look at this. A pastor's case for the morality of abortion. Jess Cass, a minister in the United Church of Christ, believes the procedure should be fully legal and accessible. Her path to that position has been complicated. No kidding. She supports abortion rights and is representative of her denomination on this issue. Listen to this. According to the Pew Research Center, 72% of people in the United Church of Christ, a small progressive denomination with a little less than 1 million members, think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. What that means, if you do your math, you have roughly, in a tiny little denomination, just one tiny little denomination, we have over 720,000 Christians that believe it's biblically moral to abort your child. Now, don't tell me that certain men haven't crept in. Jude, if Jude saw what we see today, he wouldn't be able to say, oh, certain men. He would say it's totally been overrun. It's, it, it, it's been a mass attack. They have come at us en masse. It's everywhere. We're just talking about a fragment of Christianity of 720,000 are saying, yeah, we should rip these poor, innocent, defenseless little children, rip them limb by limb out of the womb. I... I cannot get my head wrapped around how demonic this is. The level of filth and deception and insanity and immorality that is happening in the church while they call on the name of Yeshua. We should be ripping our clothes and throwing dust on our heads. This is absolutely insane. We look at this one, a Christian argument for abortion, a question and answer with Rebecca Todd Peters. Abortion is a moral issue. That was a good start, but that's where it ends. Just not in the way we've been taught, argues Rebecca Todd Peters, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and professor of religious studies at Alone University. She is also the author of a new book, Trust Women. Last time I read my Bible, it says trust in the Lord. Not to trust in any man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. A progressive Christian argument for reproductive justice. Oh, don't, I hate that word so bad. Progressive. Progressive Christian is just is so wrong on so many levels. Within the context of a specific woman's life, the moral consequences of having a child can be equal to, if not greater than, the moral consequences of having an abortion. And so in many cases, she argues, abortion can be a morally good decision. But do you understand what she's saying? She's saying, listen, you know, there could be greater moral implications by letting the child live, so we should kill it. It's actually more moral to take the child out. This is happening in the church. Again, I'm not talking to a Berkeley graduate here. I'm talking about people in the church. This is absolute insanity. The church is bleeding out right now. We are in a gurney. And if you think for one moment we're going to avoid judgment, that's delusional. Because I'm not even sharing a fragment of what is going on in the church. People calling on the name of Yeshua. It is so blasphemed. His name is more blasphemed than any generation in past history. Nothing like this has ever been known. The kind of stuff that we see going on. It's totally insane. Here we go. Church sparks controversy after holding inclusive joint birthday celebration for Yeshua and Muhammad. And so you remember that a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about Emmanuel Cleaver, this representative, right, from Missouri, 
who is saying a great little prayer. The only problem is, is he's saying it in the name of another God, in the name of Brahma. Okay, he is a minister. Do you, do you understand? You know how many stories like there are like this? There are countless stories. In the church, this is what's happening. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. But we see them. We see them. By their fruits, you will know them. And take it as Spurgeon. It is a crying sin with our churches that there are many in their midst who never ought to be there, who would be fit members of an alehouse or a favorite resort of the gay and frivolous, but who never ought to sip the sacramental wine or eat the holy bread, the emblems of the sufferings of our Lord. O Paul, how wouldst thou have said tonight, and how wouldst thou have wept while saying it? We have many in our midst who are the enemies of the cross of Christ because God, their God, is their belly, and their mind is on earthly things, and their life is not consistent with the great things of God. Oh, how accurate that is. But again, I tell you, if Spurgeon could see what we see today, he wouldn't even believe it. There's just no way. Ravenhill says this, all you have to do is get a closer walk with God, and you'll find your enemies are in your own church. And that's the truth. See, we're at, a, we're, we're at an impasse right now where you're going to have to decide whether you're going to heed the call of what Jude has called for. Where it's time to fight to the death for the truth. Where it's time to contend for the faith. Where it's time to go defend the honor and the holiness and the sacred, uh, sacredness of the name of Yeshua. And that we are to speak this truth, not out of anger. We can be angry at sin, but speak the truth in love. You know, I can't tell you, when we did the Freedom March, right? A couple years ago, we went to the Freedom March, and it's all these testimonies of all these people that came out of the LGBTQ movement. And I talked to so many, and their testimonies were just basically cookie-cutter the same. They're all experiencing. They were in a lot of sin. Some were in drugs. A lot of them, probably every single person I talked to, I believe, was into pornography. And they were having these same-sex relationships. And, and here's what's interesting. After talking to them, you know, asking them, how did you come to find the Lord. And it's interesting, they all have their stories, but so many are like the following. It says, you know, some Christian was taking the time to love on me and, and to speak with me and just show me love. But what was the hook? Once they created that relationship, then they told him, you know what? I say this out of love. If you continue down the path, you're going to go to hell. You go back and rewatch Luca's testimony. That is her testimony. Her testimony was is that this pastor had the audacity to tell me I was going to go to hell if I continued down this path. And she was angry, but she went home, and guess what the Holy Spirit did? Worked her over. It struck fear in her heart. Could you imagine if at that point, Luca was told, if you are fulfilled, Luca, or you're happy in your heart, you don't need to change. Where would she be today? See, this is, this is the insanity, the demonic activity that is actually happening. And we got to call this stuff out. So I'm, we're going to close in prayer here.